Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high stakes, speed bumps, and off ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell, and Corey Frank from Branch 49. Chris and Corey take us on a nostalgic journey through the evolution of sales tech and the intriguing world of AI. They start with a blast from the past, reminiscing about a 1960s AI program called Eliza, which acted as a non-directive therapist, fooling people into thinking it was a friend. Fast forward to the present day, they question the true value of CRM systems, pondering whether they actually help make money or just keep salespeople organized. Corey shares a road trip story of stumbling upon racks of rock salt in Alabama, sparking the idea of the right people selling the right tools. Chris emphasizes that onboarding salespeople should involve engaging them in discovery meetings from day one to boost their success. This episode encourages sales managers and CEOs to rethink their sales tech strategies, focus on revenue generating activities, and find the perfect balance between human touch and AI. Join us for Rock Salt and Roll, unraveling sales tech's mystery. And here we are once again. Welcome to another episode of the Market Dominance Guys with Corey Frank. And always to my virtual side, if we're watching this in beautiful, vibrant Technicolor, is Chris Beal, the Sage of Sales, the Prophet of Prophet, the Hawking of Hawking. Chris, where in the world is Chris Beal today? North, south, across the sea? Uh, next to definitely a- northwest today at the tip of the Quimper Peninsula looking out over Discovery Bay and waving to the nice people in Victoria, British Columbia, who never seem to respond. The Quimper Bay and Discovery, that sounds made up. That sounds like something out of a Carmen Sandiego video game. We'll, we'll, we'll go with you for, for this time. So, hey, listen, it's been a few weeks since we've had a few vacations and here we are together again. And last time we were, as we are apt to do, Chris, always all roads seem to lead to the theory of constraints. Dr. Ellie Goldrott's beautiful bestseller that I think powers both of our organizations in so many ways and should power many more, especially most of our clients that we get to partner with. But before we turned on the air, we were talking a little bit about AI. And you had a very interesting theory I think, a postulate that could be a great topic for today's chat with our audience. And that is really around the premise of what, Chris? Well, twofold. One is, I was just reminiscing about a very early, very powerful, very short program called ELIZA written in the 60s, which I got to work with when I was at Bell Labs. ELIZA is, I don't know what, like 80 lines of code, right? So imagine... Chat GPT is like an infinite amount of data, not really infinite. This huge amount of data has been ingested. And here's this little snippet of code with a few keywords in it that would act as a what was called a Rogerian non-directive therapist. Now, I know, Corey, this is a sick Ooh. business, but when I was in high school, I actually wrote <laughs> a thesis for my physics class, of all things, because you could do any science you wanted about Rogerian non-directive therapy. and how basically the idea is that you ask questions that kind of reflect back to somebody what they said in question form. 
And then they keep going to the point where they finally spill their guts. So Eliza yes, was yeah. a program that just had a few lines of code. It was a kind of a sophisticated language called Slip that was really good at mm-hmm. kind of keeping keywords around and so forth. But pretty much it would ask you a very small number of questions and inject some of your own language into them. And the people I worked with, because I couldn't resist going around and tormenting the innocent at uh, Bell Labs, became convinced it was a friend of theirs. Like it was the opposite of the Turing test. You know, the Turing test supposed to be, hey, when is the AI going to be so smart that we can't tell it from a human in a text-based interaction. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly that's already happened with ChatGPT, right? You and I and Susan wrote a book with it. It had to be at least smart enough to write a book with us. And all it did was yeah. summarize yeah. some stuff, right? But we've crossed that threshold. I think nobody talks about the Turing test anymore because it's pretty mm-hmm. clear you have to work very hard to say, oh, that ChatGPT thing doesn't know what I'm talking about. By the way, it doesn't know what you're talking about, but that's fine. It just shows me we don't know what we're talking about either, right? We're just responding. But here, way back in the 60s, for those of you who don't know, the 60s was a decade in the 1900s. So that was the century (laughs) before this one. And I was of an age to be writing some programs there. I started writing code in 68, I believe, Mm -hmm. which is a while ago. (laughs) Say this to young people you work with, you know, they just go, I don't think so. There is, yeah. there is no computers back then. What do what'd you write it on? Stone tablet? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we didn't even mm-hmm. have stone tablets. But, you know, it's interesting with regard to sales tech, AI is pouring into sales tech like it's pouring into all tech now. And That's right. we've been talking about it a little bit. And one of the functions I think it actually provides, especially for people buying it, is it sort of comforts you like a therapist. It's like, well, now I got somebody on my team who won't talk back, who will work every day, who kind of reflects back my own stuff at me. And yet, what we were talking about, Ellie Goldrod, theory of constraints. Well, the big question and the goal was, but does it make money? Like, how does this make money? And I think that's really interesting because a shiny object kind of acts like a gooey object, which is the insides of somebody, and makes you feel kind of special about yourself maybe, but how does it make money? Like, I keep wondering, how do these organizations who buy this stuff justify those expenditures? And I don't just mean justify them, but how do they measure how much money it actually makes them if they do well, it I have all? a theory. I have a all theory, right. Chris. That's interesting. It reminds me, I just got back from a road trip, and it reminds me of a road trip that I went through these same places as I was in the South on my way to Wisconsin. And I stopped in a little podunk town and grab my RC Cola and my moon pie. And in the back, this is just in Alabama. I see racks upon racks of rock salt. Now this isn't Boston or Milwaukee or Chicago. This is rock salt in the deep South. And I try to ask you know questions that sometimes get me in trouble, but I made a comment to proprietors says, wow, you guys must sell a lot of rock salt because you have racks and racks of rock salt. And he's like, nope, haven't sold a bag in months. But you know who can sell rock salt? The guy who sold me rock salt can sell rock salt. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes me think of our topic today. What do you say? You know who can sell sales tech and MarTech tools? The people who can sell sales and MarTech tools, those guys can sell sales and MarTech tools. So how big of a market is this? I mean, I'm in more tech-enabled services. You certainly have been on the front 
lines of this sales MarTech spend, and it's more of a weapon than a tool, certainly. But how big is this market, Chris? And kind of what have you seen the different flavors over the years kind of evolve to? Well, and the market now is supposedly about $100 billion a year, growing at 16.7% annually. So I guess that just says you can remove your brain and just invest in, you know, like a portfolio of these sales tech, martech companies and sit back and make 16.7% forever. I actually don't think that that's true, but something is driving all of those sales. And the question is, okay, so folks are buying this stuff, whatever this stuff is, then what? So what folks used to buy, what got it all started really was CRM. Actually, what really got us started, the first sales tech of great value was the telephone. The second was cars. The third was those tubes with wings that leap up into the air and take you across the country to have a meeting while your poor competitor is trying to do it over the telephone or driving for three days or whatever. Those That became a popular kind of sales technology. Like the airline industry is primarily driven by salespeople getting on airplanes so that they could get there before the other guy. And it was mostly guys back then. Sorry. We all know women are better salespeople than men, but it was the guys getting on the planes back then with, with some exceptions. Yep. So that was early sales technology. And then the computerized stuff came along. And one of the big ideas is let's keep track of all of our customers. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. And we're back with Corey and Chris. And we called it customer relationship management. Let's keep track of the relationships that we have with our customers. Now, a hugely successful industry, right? You have Salesforce.com, you have Microsoft Dynamics is a big product. HubSpot now has one of these CRM things. If you go and ask somebody, how do you justify your expenditure on CRM, all the consulting and so forth? How do you actually turn that into dollars and cents? Like, where does it go on, in your P&L? Well, you would think it would have to go toward time savings because what else would it really do? I guess it could keep track of things you would have forgotten. But I don't think most salespeople were forgetting their top opportunities. It might let you scale to kind of interact with a larger market, more numerically, more folks than you could have otherwise, because now you can sort of flit among the records in your CRM and go, ooh, what about this one? It might do something with relationship to tasks and calendars, but what does that do? Does it save time or does it make more money? And if so, how much time how much more money? And we know in sales, when you save time, in a sense, you're always making money because you have both the cost of the labor and you have opportunity costs. Sales is the only job really that works like this. So it, when you're buying the labor in sales, you're buying labor that's a two-edged sword. If it doesn't produce, it's that racehorse we talk about that eats while you sleep. But the main thing is it takes up a stall. You could have put another racehorse in that actually yeah, runs and yeah. wins some races. 
Mm-hmm. Right? That's mm-hmm. the issue there. I actually still think to this day, nobody's been able to figure out if investing in CRM is a good idea or a bad idea with regard to making money. I think there's a lot of controversy around it. I think if you dig in, you'd have a hard time saying, oh yeah, that's easy. This makes money like X. It saves us 40 million hours a year or something like that. (laughs) So in your business, for instance, you use CRMs, right? At Branch 49. What would you say they do that you couldn't do any other way that allows you to make money? Because you're a proxy for others. So you're like a condensed sales organization, right? All you do is sales. That's your whole business. So how does your CRM make you money? Well, you start with the large fortune, right? And then you <laughs> you end up with a smaller one. I come probably like you, Chris, as an initial broker right out of school. It's I had the proverbial three by five cards in a telephone. And everything beyond that seems to have diminishing returns. There's a bigger promise that an auto dialer or a CRM, but I think what I've seen and certainly what you have seen at a much greater scale is that if you don't have certain elements in place in that organization, just adding and stacking up new tech tools very quickly becomes a constraint in the system and not greasing the wheels of throughput. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think for one thing, we have an issue with onboarding salespeople anyway, which is we have to teach them our business. Actually, hiring a salesperson is like acquiring a business. It's like acquiring a company. It doesn't actually resemble hiring a regular employee as much as it resembles going out and buying a company. You get their overhead, right? You're going to pay their base. You have to integrate them in some way to your business. And then you have to give them some advantage in their business that they wouldn't have had if you hadn't acquired them. So supposedly you're going to help them with something. You're going to give them a territory, right? That they wouldn't have had otherwise. And then you kind of sit back and hope they perform. And there's this period of time called onboarding and ramping that there's a whole bunch of sales tools that are dedicated to that. Let's onboard and ramp their new salespeople faster. That is, you buy that business to that salesperson, so to speak. That don't mean they're coming with a Rolodex. That's kind of an old idea, but some people still like that. They, they represent a capability that will act somewhat independently, but redound to the benefit of your company with regard to flow yeah. of future growth profit. It's really interesting how we spend so much time in training, educating, having practice sessions, building pipeline for whatever it happens to be, these new salespeople. And then most of them don't work out. In that way, it's like buying a business too. Anybody who's emerges in acquisitions knows that document that justifies the acquisition tends to actually read more like a fairy tale after the fact than it does a blueprint for a modest sized house that gets built nicely and you can live in it. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's really interesting. So there's a whole bunch of sales tech, sales enablement kind of stuff, whose purpose is to get a salesperson to the point where they can sell. What I find ironic about that, by the way, is when you hire a salesperson, you're hiring somebody who doesn't have anything in their funnel. There's no one there, right? There's nothing for them to work on. So instead of solving that problem, what we tend to do is go make sure that if something showed up, they do a great job with it. So we might take four or five months of training them on every element of our company, every element of our product line, 
taking them through stuff that is so voluminous, you can only deliver it through an LMS, a learning management system that talks to their iPhone so that they can learn things while they're standing in line at Safeway, which is the only place I learn anything anymore. And and all, and then it's like, oh, and who are they going to practice all? You know, who are they going to apply this to? Oh, well, now we have to build up blah, blah, blah. So there's a case right there where the tech, to me, is being used prematurely to solve a problem you don't have yet. And as my wife, Helen Fanucci, always says, engage the problem, then figure out what you don't know rather than sit around and try to learn everything and then go and engage the problem, right? So the problem is we don't have anybody that you're talking with. I was just talking with somebody today who's been on our podcast, James Thornburg, about his business. And a question is, well, if he wanted to expand in certain ways, he's doing super well, what might he do? And it's really a tricky thing. He's facing that problem. If you hired a salesperson, what would they do? The answer probably is, Get somebody on board and give them the meetings that you're not so sure about out of your pipeline, bifurcated into the obviously good and the, well, maybe these are for practice, and get them talking to people in discovery meetings on day one. Yeah. As Branch 49 has proven, discovery meetings are a generic capability. They're not specific to a product. It's like Rogerian non-directive therapy. You yes. learn to ask some questions that are kind of like the kind that make somebody spill their guts. We have a whole podcast episode on this called The Confessional is Now Open. And they confess and you've moved forward. You've learned something you can't learn any other way. That's an education that's worth getting. So it's really interesting to me. And I wonder, how does somebody justify economically? Well, I know how they do it. We onboard and ramp them faster. Therefore, we save labor dollars because they go to work sooner, so to speak, three months in rather than six months in. And we reduce opportunity costs because they start generating revenue sooner. But an alternative to the tool is just to say, hey, maybe we're doing it backwards. Maybe the first thing they should do is just hold some discovery meetings or, God forbid, Mm -hmm. give them a list and let them cold call it. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer, investor, or partner is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's time to really go big, you need to use an uncommon methodology to gain attention, frame your thoughts, and employ a successful sequencing that is fresh enough to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. From crafting just the right cold call screenplays to curating and mapping the ideal call list for your entire TAM, Branch 49's Modern and Innovative Sales Toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.